If you'd please turn in your copy of God's Word to the book of Leviticus. Uh, The book of Leviticus, we uh, began our study in the book of Leviticus last week, looking at the introduction uh, to the book of uh, Leviticus. And this morning, we're actually going to to dive into the book itself, and we are going to look at the whole chapter of chapter 1 in Leviticus, uh, dealing uh, with the burnt offerings. Uh, So with that, please give attention now to the reading of God's holy uh, and inspired word. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd, Or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons the priest shall Bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. And the sons of Aaron the priest shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons the priest shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat on the wood that is on the fire on the altar but its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his gift for a burnt offering is from the flock, from the sheep or the goats, he shall bring a male without blemish, and he shall kill it on the north side of the altar before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar. And he shall cut it into pieces with its head and its fat. And the priest shall arrange them on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But the entrails and the legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall offer all of it and burn it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds... Then he shall bring his offering of turtle doves or pigeons, and the priest shall bring it to the altar and wring off its head and burn it on the altar. Its blood shall be drained on the side of the altar. He shall remove its crop from with its contents and cast it beside the altar on the east side in the place for ashes. He shall tear it open by its wings, but shall not sever it completely. And the priest shall burn it on the altar On the wood that is on the fire, it is a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord uh, will stand forever. Would you bow your heads with me in a quick word of prayer? Our Lord in heaven, we come now to this book of Leviticus, as we saw last week, a book that many of us pass by. And we do pray, Father, for a special measure of your grace as we deal with these words that seem so foreign and distant to us. But as we saw last week, might we see that 
every jot and tittle of your word, every comma, every word, every conjunction points us and points our hearts to Jesus Christ, who has not come to abolish the law, but has come to fulfill it. And so we pray that this morning, as we look at this burnt offering, that we would see our Lord and Savior Christ afresh, who has offered up his whole body as a sacrifice for us, making atonement by his shed blood and his broken body. Shine the eyes of our hearts uh, onto Christ Jesus, who even now sits enthroned up on high as that great sacrificial lamb that ever lives to intercede for us, his people. Show us Christ this day, we pray, for we ask it in his strong name. Amen. We mentioned last week that the book of Leviticus is really marked by three sections. Uh, you have chapters 1 through 15 that deal with the sacrificial system and, and the sacrificial system as it's laid out for the, the Levites, the Levitical priesthood, and how they are to offer those sacrifices on behalf of both themselves and the people. And then you have a, a transition in chapters 17 through 27 to the rest of the book where it moves from the sacrificial system and the Levitical priesthood to dealing with holiness laws for the people of Israel. But packed in between chapters 1 through 15 and, and chapters 17 through 27 is chapter 16, which deals with uh, the Day of Atonement. And as we mentioned last week, that is that one day, that Day of Atonement is the one day out of the year where the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies, where, where God's glory cloud would descend and where his special presence was seated atop the Ark of the Covenant in the mercy seat beyond that veil that separated the Holy of Holies and the holy place. And it would be the, the one day out of the year the high priest would enter in and throw the blood of bulls and goats upon that Ark of the Covenant and that mercy seat. And so we concluded last week that really chapters 1 through 15, that is laying out the sacrificial system, is really driving us towards that one day of atonement. It's driving us toward chapter 16, that special day of atonement. And that day of atonement that is in chapter 16, and the way Moses writes the book, it serves as sort of this hinge on which the rest of the book sort of swings. You have chapter 1 through 15 that deals with the sacrificial system leading up to chapter 16, the Day of Atonement, and that sort of ends that section with the sacrificial system. And it's that hinge that turns us now to the people of Israel as it deals with holiness laws for the people of Israel. And here as we see, and, and, and as we see that coming to fruition here even in the first uh, uh, chapter of this book, the idea that atonement really plays front and center in this book as we see the word atonement mentioned in verse 4. Uh, recall what we saw last week at the end of the book of Exodus where the tabernacle has been constructed. All the elements of the tabernacle have been put in place. God's glory cloud fills the tabernacle, but there's a problem there at the end of the book of Exodus in Exodus chapter 40. Moses, the Moses that has spoken face to face with God, the Moses who has gotten closer than anyone to God, the very mediator of God's people, is not able to enter into the tabernacle. 
And we mentioned that there are really two concepts and two words that are connected to the tabernacle. First, the tabernacle represented uh, God's dwelling amidst his people. And we see the fulfillment of that at the end of Exodus. But also it was meant to be a tent of meeting. But we see that it has not yet become that by the time you get to the end of the book of Exodus because Moses is unable uh, to enter in. And Leviticus deals uh, with that question, that dilemma, that cliffhanger, if you will, at the end of Exodus. How can the dwelling place of the Lord become the place where God meets with his people? And as we saw last week, the answer that Leviticus gives us is through atonement. And so here in verse 1 of Leviticus 1, we are to see it really coming off the heels of Exodus 40. Uh, Really what will not be seen in your English translation, but is seen clearly in the Hebrew, is that the first word in Leviticus is a conjunction. It is the word and, showing us that Moses is self-consciously picking up where the book of Exodus left off. And so what we are to see here in the beginning of Leviticus is God speaking to Moses from that tabernacle that Moses himself has not uh, been able to enter into. And what he is going to lay out for Moses is how the people of Israel are to approach a holy and pure God, how they are to enjoy his presence among them. And right off the bat, we see the primary means is through atonement. Now, this word atonement is a word we get from uh, Middle English. It, it really simply means at one mint. It really, refi- it really refers to taking two parties that are otherwise separated and, and bringing them together as, as one, an at oneness. Really, it's a word that that carries out the idea that we know so well, the the word we often use is reconciliation. Atonement is reconciliation between two parties that have been separated but are brought together, reconciled, as it were, like friends. They become one. Now, the Hebrew word for atonement is the word kippur. It is the word kippur. And really, literally, what the word kippur means is to make clean to purge. And so with the idea here of this Hebrew word kippur as as the word for atonement, uh, really part of the the significance here as we understand this idea of of kippur being to make clean, to purge, what they would often do and what we see here is they would take an unblemished animal uh, symbolically representing a clean life, a clean and spotless life and blood. And they would uh, throw that blood upon the altar. And remember what we saw last week in Leviticus 17.11, the blood represented the life. And so they would take an unblemished animal, a clean, symbolically clean, unblemished animal, and throw the life of that animal atop the altar to purge and cleanse uh, the sin-stained sinner. And so here in verse 4, it says the offerer is to lay his hands on the unblemished animal. Now, this was a common thing that they would often do to lay his hands on this unblemished animal would, would, would really be a sign of ownership. It's a sign from this owner that, that this offering that I bring to you, Lord, is, is coming 
from me. It is the offerer saying to the Lord, to the holy and pure Lord, this clean, unblemished sacrifice I offer up to you. It is the offerer saying, see not my uncleanliness, but see the cleanliness of this offering that I own and place my hands atop and purge me from my sin. See not me and my filthy rags, but see this clean and spotless animal that I own. See him and his cleanliness, which is to be symbolic of purity. And so as the sinner's sins are purged and wiped away by the unblemished substitute, the word we often use is expiated. His sins are are expiated, cleansed. He is made pure. That is what will bring propitiation. It will appease God's wrath. God's wrath is set aside. His wrath is propitiated, hence bringing atonement between God and the offerer, an at-oneness, reconciliation between the sinner and the one who has offered this unblemished substitute. And really, we will see this as we go throughout. I will use those two words as, as we go throughout Leviticus, the idea of expiation, expiation cleansing sin from the sinner, and that expiation is what brings propitiation, God's wrath against the sinner, God's judgment against the sinner being appeased and bringing reconciliation between the offerer and a holy and pure God. So we see this idea of atonement and this word kapoor, making clean, expiating sin in order to propitiate a holy and wrathful God against sin. And really, in chapters 1 through 7, we get a subset of that overarching uh, section of chapters 1 through 15. In chapters 1 through 7, what God is going to lay out are really the five primary sacrifices that bring atonement uh, between God and his people. Uh, They are as following. Uh, They are as follows. Uh, The burnt offerings, which we will look at today. Uh, The grain offerings. Uh, the peace offerings, the sin offerings, and the guilt offerings. And today we will consider uh, the burnt offering. And today I just want us to consider three things about the burnt offering this morning. First, it consecrates. Second, it costs. And third, it confirms. It consecrates, it costs, it confirms. First, it consecrates. Now, what really separates the burnt offering from all other offerings is that the whole animal would be consumed by the fire. As we will see with the other four offerings in chapters 1 through 7, only part of the animal is burnt on the fire. But here with the burnt offering, what separates it is that the whole animal will be, would be burnt on the fire. The Hebrew word uh, olah, really means whole offering. It is a whole offering. Uh, Verse 9, the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. 
and really what this is meant to represent as the offerer gives this whole offering, as the whole animal is consumed, it is meant to represent the offerer's full consecration unto the Lord. The fact that the offerer is giving his whole being unto God. Really, it is the essence of what we call repentance. It's not a partial turning away from sin, but it is the whole being turning away from sin and unto God. And that is what the burnt offering is meant to represent. And how fitting is that considering what we saw last week that along with atonement, one of the major themes in the book of Leviticus is holiness. And how fitting is it that the book of Leviticus would begin with the burnt offering, which represents the offerer giving his whole life to a holy God. It represents an absolute surrender to the Lord alone. Now, it's worth noting that the burnt offering, as I mentioned in our unison reading of Scripture, uh, is the oldest offering within redemptive history and within God's revelation of himself. Uh, We saw it uh, as early as chapter 8 in our unison reading of Scripture in Genesis after the flood, and, and Noah, after that event, offers whole burnt offerings to the Lord. And part of its meaning there Part of what Noah is doing there is saying that a new humanity that has now been restored and has had its sins cleansed by the cleansing agent of God's waters and flood are now to be wholly consecrated, turn wholly unto the Lord. The new humanity that is found in Noah as its representative is to be wholly devoted to God and to God alone. And as the whole animal is burnt, it transforms the animal into smoke, and that smoke ascends into heaven where God sits. And it is a pleasing aroma to him when his people give their whole lives over to the Lord. I think it is the burnt offering that Paul most likely has in mind when he writes in Romans 12, verse 1, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Our whole body, our whole body and soul is to be devoted to the Lord and to the Lord alone. Just as the whole body of the offering was burnt and ascended into God, and he was pleased with it, so also he is pleased when we devote our whole selves to God, when our whole being, every faculty of our makeup turns from sin and to God alone, and we render unto him our lives, all of our lives, as living sacrifices before him. God is pleased with such saints. He smiles down from heaven. We will be celebrating the Lord's Supper this morning. And what does Jesus say in the institution of that supper? This is my body, which has been broken for you. Jesus's whole body, Jesus's blood, 
every faculty of Jesus, not just part of Jesus, not just a leg, not just an arm, not just a finger, but his whole body is consecrated unto the Lord and is rendered as a sacrifice on the cross for us. And so now as we are conformed into the image of Jesus Christ, we are to reflect him who is our whole burnt offering who has given his whole body, his soul, given his blood for us, his people. And we are to reflect Jesus Christ, who has consecrated his whole being unto the Lord and given it over to the Lord as a sacrifice for our sins. So we see that the burnt offering, it consecrates, it consecrates. But second, it costs it costs. We notice there are three different types of animals that are acceptable as burnt offerings. First, you have the herd animals, which would have had the greatest economic value there in Israel. Uh, But then second, you have the flock offerings. And third, uh, the bird offerings. Really, basically what this lays out is uh, that the person, if he can't afford a herd animal, which was really for the more wealthy people within Israel, they had to go to step down and offer up a flock, one of the flock, a lamb or a goat. But if they couldn't offer a lamb or a goat, if they weren't wealthy enough to to own one of those, then then they would go down the economic ladder again and, and offer a bird. But either way, whatever economic class you were in, you were expected to offer up to the Lord. But within each economic class, notice that every offering was to be unblemished. Each offering was to be unblemished. A blemished animal within the ancient world would uh, really have been of lesser economic value. And so what we see here is that the offerer is to give his best to the Lord. Whatever his best is. If it is of the herd, if it is of the flock, if it is of the birds, whatever his best is, he is to give it over to the Lord. Recall that story in Mark. We, we got done with the gospel of Mark, and, and Jesus and his disciples are in that temple, and they see that poor widow. And what does she do? She just gives those two measly coins, which was all that she had. And yet Jesus was pleased with her sacrifice because it cost her something. And when this is offered up to God, it pleases him. It is a pleasing aroma in his sight. Think of Genesis 4 with Cain and Abel, where Cain just sort of gives the scraps of his ground. He gives some of his fruit to the Lord, and the Lord does not regard Cain's offering, but he regards Abel's because Abel gives to the first of his flock, to an unblemished first of his flock. And not only does he give his best to the Lord, but he gives his fat portions, which was really the best of the best. And God is pleased with Abel's offering. Why? Because it cost him something. It cost him something. It didn't just fit into his schedule. It hurt, it smarted to give to the Lord. 
I ask you today, brothers and sisters, do your offerings to the Lord hurt from time to time? Does it hurt? Does it smart? Does it sting? As you take those things that you love so much, that you would love to hang on to, but you you throw them to the Lord. From time to time, our Christian lives are to sting as we take our cross and place it upon our shoulders and give our best back to God. Now, this means much more than just mere financial giving. I heard Rosaria Butterfield recently interviewed, and she was speaking on the subject of Christian hospitality, and she said, it ought to sting. It ought to hurt. As you, as you give up your free time, as you, as you open up your home to your neighbors who you have been called to, to love as your, yourself, it's going to sting from time to time because it costs you something. Is your service to God costing you something today? Is it costing your time, your economic welfare, your reputation? Does being a Christian at times hurt because of what you are giving up for the Lord? Philippians 2, speaking of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, though he was equal with God, he emptied himself and made himself nothing for you and for me. And just as we are to reflect him who offers up his whole body, consecrates his whole life to the Lord, so we are to reflect him in costing us something to follow him and having it hurt from time to time as we purge sin from our life and as we are sanctified and kill the indwelling sin that remains. It ought to sting because it's certainly staying for the one that we follow. It's stung for the one that we call our master, that we say we follow. So we see that it consecrates, it, it uh, costs, and third and finally, it confirms. It confirms. Uh, the pleasing aroma, which really closes off this ritual, really serves as a confirmation of sorts, a seal that a sort of capstone on the obedience of the offerer and his sacrifice. It is a seal and a confirmation that the Lord has accepted and received this obedient offering, this sacrificial offering of the offerer. Again, we see this in chapter 8 with Noah's burnt offering. It comes after God has shown Noah grace and and shown Noah favor, uh, sparing him and his family uh, from the flood. And and after Noah has been obedient in in building and constructing the ark and gathering the animals of the earth, and, and God, after he has provided a means of escape through that ark, Noah, when he when he leaves the ark, he offers up whole burnt offerings to the Lord and the pleasing aroma to God is a seal and confirmation from the Lord that he is pleased with Noah and his obedience and his sacrifice that he has rendered unto him. We see it in Genesis 22 when Abraham there, that famous story of Abraham where he is willing to offer up his his son Isaac 
and, and God, before Abraham places the knife into Isaac, speaks from heaven to Abraham, and he says, do not lay your hands on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And God provides the ram instead of Isaac as a burnt offering. And that burnt offering is a confirmation both of God's grace toward Abraham and Abraham's sacrifice unto his Lord, his obedience unto God. The pleasing aroma is a seal and confirmation that the Lord has received the sacrifice of Abraham. But take note in our passage here in chapter 1 that it is just not, it's not merely external ritualistic obedience, but an obedience that comes from the heart. The obedience, as our confession puts it, the obedience of faith. Notice what it is that God says in Leviticus 1 verse 2, when any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, when any one of you brings an offering to the Lord. Now, this is in stark contrast to what we will see in chapters 11 through 15 concerning the sacrifices during the festivals, which are obligatory. They are obligated to give those sacrifices. But here it seems that these sacrifices come from a heart that has been convicted by sin and one that wishes to restore relationship with the Lord. It is a sacrifice that is offered not merely as an obligation to a grumpy God in the sky to somehow satisfy a divine policeman who is watching every little scrupulous detail of our lives, but it is an offering from a heart that is convicted by sin and comes to the Lord and acknowledges his grace and his promise to forgive those who come with the obedience of faith and to offer up a sacrifice before him. It's worth noting that the burnt sacrifice is really seen as the prototype sacrifice. It is the sacrifice that was really seen as as the paradigmatic sacrifice, that paradigm sacrifice, and we see it as it is the first sacrifice we read of in chapter 1. It really was the sacrifice that all other sacrifices, especially the four that we will see in chapters 1 through 7, are based on. We will see all the other four sacrifices in chapters 1 through 7. All the rituals of those sacrifices will end with at least part of the sacrifice being burnt and that that burning animal transformed into smoke and ascending up to God as a pleasing aroma to him. We'll see with all of the sacrifice, there is a lot that the sacrifices entail. Many times these animals that they sacrifice might have very well been a pet or a friend, or not a friend, but a pet. (laughs) One that was they they had in their homes, one that was precious to them. We've already considered the, the economic value of these sacrifices. They would go through a long process of obedience with these sacrifices. Notice here in Leviticus 1, it says that the offerer themselves would slaughter the animal before the tabernacle. It is the offerer that slaughters the animal, blood sprinkled on the altar, and that process of obedience is concluded and sealed by smoke ascending up to God where he sits as a pleasing aroma to him. 
confirming and sealing his acceptance of that offering that has been rendered from a heart of faith, convicted by sin and going through the long process of faithful obedience to the means of atonement that God has provided. Really, this is in many ways what the cross of Christ entails for us today. It is a confirmation. It is a seal of Christ's obedience to God throughout his whole life. An obedience that has not come as an obligation because, as Christ says, I give myself freely to my Father in heaven. It is, an, it is something that he does out of love for the Father from a heart that loves his Lord. And do you remember those final words as we saw not too long ago at the cross? Into your hands I commit my spirit. As his sacrifice is ended, his spirit, as it were, ascends into heaven like smoke, as a pleasing aroma in God's sight. But unlike the smoke of the Old Testament, the smoke doesn't quickly evaporate and is gone, but that spirit is now, now tied to a resurrected body that is forever placed before God the Father, forever creating and making atonement for us and for our sins. He is the whole burnt offering, and his spirit, which ascends on high, is now forever before the sight of God, and it doesn't evaporate. It is there before him as a means of atonement forever and into eternity itself. So that as we cling to Christ, as we place our hands upon Christ in faith, we have everlasting atonement. We have a pleasing aroma before the sight of God into eternity itself. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ who has come and has offered up himself, who has consecrated his whole life unto you. As he says, and as we will soon see, he takes, a, uh, he takes bread and says, this is my body which is broken for you. We, we thank you, O Lord, that it cost our Lord everything to to come down and to strip himself of that glory in order to save us from our sins. And we thank you, O Lord, that with Christ, we see that he has confirmed and sealed the acceptance of his sacrifice before you and your sight. As his spirit and even now his body ascends up on high as a pleasing aroma before your sight, so that in him we have everlasting atonement everlasting relationship and reconciliation with you, a holy and pure God. And we are able in and through Christ to cry out, Abba, Father. What a glorious truth this is. And we thank you now for this time where we come to this table to remember that sacrifice of our Lord and Savior. And we pray that you would knit our hearts now to Jesus Christ afresh as we consider his broken body and his shed blood for us, your saints, and his children. It is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.